0: Um, be deliberate in everything that you do. <laughs> Decide on what your platforms are that you're using and use them and stick to them and have um, norms and expectations about how they are used. So, for example, you know at Humentum, we use Slack for all of our internal communications and we use email only for external communication.
1: This is a podcast called Walk, Talk, Listen. Hey, everybody, this is another episode of the podcast Walk Talk Listen. And as always, I'm delighted with today's guest who will introduce herself. Um, as usual, Christine, please go ahead.
0: Thank you. I'm very pleased to be here today. I'm uh, Christine So, and I am the CEO of Humentum. Um, Humentum is an organization, a nonprofit that works across the global development and humanitarian assistance sector to really help the organizations implementing programs to realize the strategic value of the operations side of what they do. So we really work on operating models, institutional Mm -hmm. architecture, people and culture, funding and financial systems, risk and compliance. So um, we believe that in order for an organization to be able to really deliver on its mission, it needs to be able to operate in a way that is equitable, accountable, and resilient. And so we help organizations build that internal to themselves and then also into the partnerships that they have with other organizations. Um, I'm I'm an epidemiologist by training. Oh, you are? I am. I have a PhD in epidemiology and I worked in um, global health for 25 years. Um, I've worked from the community level through up to the donor and global policy level, um, and so I've really been on the side of the challenges of how do you deliver programs and how do you reach um you know goals and and um, targets And I love being at Humentum now because I can bring that experience to really helping us support other organizations to deliver on their missions and, and, and is so- this
1: is your is this your first role as a CEO or you have, uh, no, yeah, I was
0: I was the CEO of the Global Health Council. Okay, um, we re- relaunched the Global Health Council in 2013, and so I led the relaunch and um, then handed it off to my predecessor or to my successor in 2016 when I moved to work for PSI as the Chief Operating Officer. Um, so I've been in executive management for a long time. Again, I've also been Uh, You know, I was uh, a team leader for health, for USAID in Mali. I was the chief of child survival for health, uh, or sorry, for UNICEF in Mali. Um, So I've worked at that executive level for quite some time. Okay.
1: Um, Yeah, I'm an anthropologist, but I actually... Did several uh, courses besides that, and one of them is is epidemiology. So I mm-hmm. was, uh, but I passed. But that's that's the only thing you can say,
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> say no. about
1: that. But uh, no, great. Um, you know, I am, I, um, yeah, I'm, I'm I'm really fascinated by by what you and your organization have been doing for quite a while now, and that is really looking at you know what is the future of of the NGO what's the role that we need to play considering everything that's happening can you talk us a little bit through it you know why that question came up and um what you've been doing within your own organization but also you you were instrumental in bringing a number of NGOs together here in the US to to look at the future
0: yeah um so as I said, we really work on the, the operations side of global development, um, and that can be quite transactional and tactical. It's delivering training. It's helping you know develop compliance policies, that sort of thing. But really, where we have shifted is to the idea that we need equity across global development and that locally-led development should be the... The, the ideal state that we are all working towards. But in order to have locally-led development, we need to have organizations that are able to exercise autonomy around their own operating models, around their decision-making, around their business models, who they, what kind of funding they're going to seek and what kind of programs they want to execute. We believe that you know, the best programming is the programming that's designed and executed closest to those who are affected by the issue that's being addressed. And so at Humentum, we have participated in and and really um, observed and witnessed all of the big thinking that is going on across global development around shifting power and what the future of the sector should be um, and the ethics of um, development work. And what we've seen is that there are a lot of very smart people asking a lot of very important and provocative questions and there are ideas that emerge from these discussions, what's missing is how you actually translate those ideas into reality. Mm. So on the one hand, you can say, oh, donors should be you know, providing funding to their recipients at the local level directly, and that'll solve all the problems. But actually, if you start scratching away at the surface, we find that, you know. The compliance rules have been set up to really get in the way of that. Um, They are asking for standards that a lot of organizations don't meet. Um, Funders don't, for example, systematically fully and fairly fund the work that they are asking organizations to do, which means that organizations are expected to subsidize their work. So how do we correct this? How do we get donors to be full and fair uh, funders? So it's that kind of it's that level of um, how the ecosystem works that we are really focusing on. We try to meet organizations and um, you know partners where they are, acknowledge what their challenges are, help them think through what are the root problems that we're going to try to ex- uh, address, and then really come up with practical solutions. And we come at this from the perspective that um, there's there's no one size fits all. Mm -hmm. And so when we're looking at working with an organization on a solution, we think about, well, what kind kind of um, consulting assessments and um, advising might you need? Um, What kind of analysis might you need to, to really break down the problem into manageable pieces? what kind of training do you need for your staff to help reorient them in the way that you now want to be working is there a community of practice or a community of peers that you can be part of that will help you co-create solutions and you know vent when you're frustrated with something and you know meeting meeting other people who are working on the same kinds of challenges and then advocacy advocacy is a really important part of this because again in a sector where Funders are setting a lot of the rules and regulations. Um, they may have a clear idea of why they're coming up with a particular rule, but when they roll it out, they may do it in a way that the implementers say, "Ah, we can't possibly do that. That's not designed to work with the way that we actually do things in yeah. reality." And so, advocacy comes comes in as a very um, important part of that because we can advocate back to donors saying, "Hey." You know, we, we recognize the end outcome that you're trying to get, but the way you're going about it isn't going to work. And so mm. can we come up together with a solution that works for everybody? So, okay. you know, we do consulting, training, advocacy and community as our approach.
1: If if you if I would ask you you know to come up with let's say the top three or top five of the changes that um, you know let's call them the, you know the the US global NGOs or maybe this is relevant also for the European uh, I, I don't know if you have you know talked with them as well the changes that they have to go through uh, to be ready for you know the future what what would that top three or top five be then?
0: So um, I'll just say we work, we really think about our stakeholder group as a three-legged stool. We think about funders, international NGOs, and national and local NGOs. Okay. Because, And we believe it's important to acknowledge and really think about the interdependencies between the three mm. of them, because we work in a sector where they're all very, very much linked in the way that we execute work. Um, but, you know, in terms of what should... INGOs in particular be thinking about in terms of how to be relevant and how to adapt for the future. Um, You know, mission, we have our missions, so I'm not going to throw up in the air the mission necessarily, but I think it's important to really look at how are you executing on that mission? If you're a mission-driven organization, how are you working with the communities that in traditional speak might've been called beneficiaries. But now we are really pushing towards a democratization of participation in design, in execution, in accountability, in governance. So as an international organization, how are you changing the way that you partner to fully value, respect and acknowledge the partners, your community partners. And that means necessarily giving up some control. And that can be scary. We recognize that that can be scary and that, that mm. you may feel that that carries some risk. But what we are really advocating for is a movement towards more trust-based partnerships, trust-based compliance, trust-based philanthropy. And it's looking at, you know, what are the elements that are needed to say we all trust each other. We believe that we're working at a similar standard of quality and accountability and then putting the partnerships together on that basis. Um, Second thing is, I think it's really important. We talk a lot about capacity building or capacity strengthening. Um, Thinking about capacity not just as a one off thing, even if you say, oh, it's a year long investment. It's not just for one year and then it's done. Think about, you know, well, yes, we should help an organization or the people in an organization upskill, we should help them grow their capacity, um, but also what needs to be put in place to sustain that level of capacity. And that goes back to this idea of financial health, full and fair coverage of the work that's being done. And, you know, we are really one of our calls to action is really that um, INGOs in working with their local partners, and this goes the same for funders in general, really should think about going beyond just funding project costs, but also including money for upskilling, for capacity strengthening. They should include funds for um, building reserves and unrestricted. Uh, funding within the local partner organizations. So it's rethinking the way that they fund also to not just be um, commissioning work for a project, but also really helping to equalize the financial playing field across all of the organizations that are part of a particular partner.
1: Um, Christine if if um have you shared this with you know the the, the funding community um and, and if so what 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 are what is their reaction um so, you know
0: yeah and, and
1: the same question for your staff because yeah. I, I I do think that um you know if you if you give this as a recommendation to the sector your own organization needs to go through a process of change as well, right? In terms of how Absolutely. you, yeah. Yeah,
0: okay. um, so I'll take the first question first mm-hmm. and then I'll talk a little bit about what we're doing internally at Humenta. Um In terms of sharing this with the funding community, yes, we are sharing this increasingly. We now have a, a theory of change. You can find it on our website. Um, and we are now really using that as the basis for all of the work that we're doing. Um, I have to say, you know, we developed our theory of change, but it was also influenced by the conversations and that we've been having with the funder community, with the INGO community, with the NNGO community. Um, And we did, uh, we spent about 18 months doing research on the funder starvation cycle. We published a report at the end of March, 2022 on the starvation cycle, that was funded by a, a group of um, foundations. We're very happy that they funded that work and that they're interested in this. Um, we have some other partnerships with several foundations who are interested really in moving towards full and fair funding. Um, and so we are seeing uptake of these ideas, but it's slow. And it's—and I, I will say its it's funders. It's also governing boards, boards of directors of INGOs. Frequently we see Mm -hmm. a disconnect between what, for example, a CEO or executive leadership in an INGO may be thinking about and what their board may be thinking about. Mm -hmm. And traditionally boards are more conservative and and, um, see more risk involved in trying to move towards these full and fair um, approaches to partnership. We are encouraged and we believe that there is actually a lot of traction around this. And, you know, especially with the real um, momentum that is building around locally led development, we are really looking also to help provide a platform for um, NGOs, national and local NGOs, to come together to advocate for themselves around these issues, because, you know, we could be an intermediary but it's much better to have people be able to speak for themselves and have their voices heard switching over to your second question about humentum so we we are a nonprofit business mm-hmm. much more that is our model rather than an ngo so we don't give grants we don't have Sub-agreements in the way that INGOs work. Um, however, we believe, what well, actually one of our one of our internal core values is walk the talk. Um, and so we believe in everything that we are doing. We are also trying to mirror internally. Hmm. Um, and so we have um, what we call our equity principles. Again, you can find those on our website. Um, and we are in the process of Um, finalizing our equity metrics that we will also be sharing. And right now, annually, we provide um, a a list of of equity accomplishments and achievements that we've um, managed to do that is both internal and external. Um, Because we believe that if we are calling for equity across the sector, we really have to have that as our guiding principle internally. I talked about bringing the strategic value of operating models to the sector. We also have been doing um, a restructuring of Humentum really to focus on ensuring our own financial health and sustainability. Um, We have a very uh, strong and dedicated um, internal push to create a culture that is equitable, resilient and accountable. Um, and we do things like, you know, every six months we have an engagement survey so we can see how employees are doing and how they rate us, but we don't just get the results of those surveys. We also make commitments about Mm -hmm. what we will do in the six months till the next survey. And we report back to the entire organization. Mm.
1: Um, is that something, uh, sorry, is that something you started the engagement survey because of COVID or you, that was already before?
0: So we were already doing it. I joined Humentum at the end of 2019 and we were Mm -hmm. doing an engagement survey. then. We have, I think, improved it and made it more. uh, We've really focused on, okay, we're getting this data back from staff. What are we going to do with it? Mm -hmm. We're not just collecting it for the sake of having data. We're collecting it because it needs to be informing how we manage ourselves. And so that's the part where making commitments, taking action, and holding ourselves accountable is really a critical part of of the engagement process at Humentum. Um, We also, I think this is really worth noting, um, at the end of 2020 or during 2020, we actually restructured our entire compensation approach to be an equity-based compensation approach. So we now have um, transparent and publicly available grading and um, pay scales. Again, you can go on our website and find all of those. Um, We don't negotiate salary. We peg any position that's open to a salary and we advertise it as such. We let people know when they're being interviewed. Um, And we want people to understand what they are going to get when they come to us. Mm. And we don't want it to be a, a situation of asymmetric information where we hold the power and they're left guessing as they come into the organization. Mm. We all we really have looked at our entire compensation and benefits um, package from the perspective of um, equity, but also trying to remove any moments of opportunity for bias or discrimination Um, And so, for example, we have also uh, uncoupled performance from compensation. Um, We now have very clearly laid out um, the progression of salary, again, that anybody can see in our pay policy, um, and we deal with performance separate to that Hmm. um, because we want to remove the opportunity for somebody to introduce either uh, intentional discrimination and bias, or unintentional discrimination or bias when um, awarding compensation increases. Hmm. So we've been trying to we've we've really been trying to do all yeah. of those things internally, as well as advocate for them and facilitate them externally.
1: Great. Are you are you familiar with the work of Frederick Laloux? You wrote a book called "Reinventing Organizations."
0: Yes, I am. Yeah.
1: Okay. So, is um, it is it you know a lot of of what you're trying to do is that in line with what he wrote? You know, in terms of, or or is it I, very different?
0: I think that I, I will be honest. It's been a while since I looked okay. at his work. Um, I mean, I think it's along the same lines, mm-hmm. but um, you know, we have a really interesting vantage point because mm-hmm. we do a lot of convening. We. Convene groups, peer groups within the sector, probably more than uh, three hundred a year at this point. Oh. Um, we have different groups. We have a CEO group that meets monthly. We have a senior um, HR and operations leadership group that meets twice a month. You know, we have all these groups that that come together, and so it means that we can be inspired by what we learn, ex- you know, in the external business climate. Um, But we also are asking questions of the peers that we are working with Mm -hmm. across the sector. And so we do spot polling, we do mentee polls, we do surveys, we have these um, roundtables, these regular roundtables where we're gathering insight, we're asking questions, um, and through all of that, it really informs our positions. It informs the products that we develop mm. and that we offer to the global development and humanitarian assistance sectors. And it also informs how we work internally. Mm. So um, while we're inspired by work that's been done elsewhere, we're also increasingly being very agile and iterative in the way that we do things. So as we go, we can make changes. If we realize that maybe, you know, we've got a gap in the way we're doing something or we tried something out and it's fallen flat, we can adjust it and move on.
1: And talking about inspired or, or, or not, you know, if if we, well, all kinds of folks listen to these episode of the podcast. Also, business people. Um, what if some of them would say, "Hey, this this sounds like you know our ESG." How? What? What would be your answer? Yes, no, different. Um...
0: Well, I mean, I think you know, for me, ESG is a it's a way of it's a, it's it's a way. Of, I was going to say it's a way of working, but it's a way of saying where your commitments lie. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I think that there is, um, gosh, credible ESG and there's symbolic ESG. And what we're really pushing for is, you know, if you are a mission-driven organization, whether you're a corporate for-profit and you have an ESG arm, or you are a nonprofit delivering on a mission, you need, if you're going to commit to principles, you need to internalize them as well. And so, you know, we know about nonprofits where internally there's a toxic work culture because of the way that things are structured, they're run, uh, you know, leaders need to model the behavior that they want to see across their organization. And unfortunately, we know that there are leaders who model very negative behavior. Um, and so, you know, I think it it is, uh, you have walk, talk, listen in your um, title, and I think yeah. it's about walking, walking the talk, and especially listening, and then incorporating what you hear into how you go forward.
1: Right. Um, I'm. I'm just wondering. So, so in terms of of, um, you know, your, uh, you know, how you do, you know, your review, etc. It, it did that change? I mean, in many organizations, uh, you know, it's the board that will do the review, sometimes they will ask some key staff. How is that going for, for you as a leader, or you know, all your the different leaders in, in your organization?
0: Well, the way that we look at performance at Humentum, and I will say right now, this is still a work in progress for us. Mm-hmm. Um, we're actually just switching over onto a new human resources information system, HRIS platform that's going to facilitate the way that we manage performance. We've switched onto a new operating system called EOS, the entrepreneurial operating system that has performance approaches within it, and we're still building some of this. So I, I want to be clear on that. Um, but one of the key principles to performance at Humentum, and I would say this is very much part of my deep core beliefs, and I hope that you know this is how I, as a leader, bring my vision of performance to Humentum is the idea that, um, you know, it is not one and done. It is not work, 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 achieve this target at all costs, and then once you do, you're done. Um, we have core values at Humentum that we really use and are trying to internalize in everything we do. And so when we think about performance, we try to think about how are we using our core values in actually actioning on, on our work. We are um, flexible in the way that we work and our expectations of staff. Uh, We don't have a four-day work week, but we have a four-day meeting week. Fridays are no-meeting Fridays and are really supposed to be for catch-up. We have every quarter, we have a week that's called a quiet learning week where we cancel all standing meetings and we let people use that week for catch up and for learning and development. We have during our work day, so so we're about 50 people, we're across 14 countries, seven time zones more or less. Mm -hmm. Um, And so to help manage that wide range of, of working times, we have core work hours that are from I'm going to get this wrong. I think it's nine to 12 every day. It switches a little bit depending on whether it's summer or winter in different places. Um, but we say you you need to be available for these core hours. Outside of those core hours, you can arrange your schedule according to what you need to do to get your work done. And so and I encourage mm. people to, you know, on their Outlook calendar to put in when they're not available. So. We have, you know, one staff member um, who has a young son and that staff member has on their calendar, um, you know, my son's dinner time. And we do not bother that person Mm -hmm. during dinner time. And that is okay. And, you know, so we want to be flexible. We want to recognize that, um, you know, especially because we're 100 percent remote, so uh, we are We could potentially be online all the time. We should not be. Um, And so we want to recognize that people's work and personal lives can bleed into each other. We are whole human beings, not human beings who easily compartmentalize. And so we work um, with that very much as our approach.
1: Thanks you for sharing that. And and just a quick question. So were were you fully remote already before COVID, or is it something that developed uh, j- during COVID?
0: So we were fully remote. Um, Humentum okay. was created in twenty seventeen of okay. a merger of three other mm-hmm. organizations, and at the time, the decision was made to be fully remote. Um, we, although we were fully remote. Up until COVID, we were doing a lot of in-person work, delivering trainings. We had a big conference every year. And so um, the pandemic did force us to change our business model very quickly. We had to pivot quickly. Um, We went from being able to see each other in person at these events and, uh, you know, trainings and things to not seeing each other at all. And so we really dug in. And, um, again, because we advise so many organizations, we really focused on, okay, how do you successfully run a remote organization? And we worked with our community to help them strengthen the way that they were managing remotely, but we also took a, what we were learning and we applied it internally. Um, so the one thing the one other thing I'll note is that, um in twenty nineteen, when I joined, we were about a third of the staff in the US, a third in the UK and Europe, and a third elsewhere. And we also changed the way that we recruit to be um, to have recruitment that is visible in many more geographies. And we really have used our remote status as what we see as an opportunity for us. And so now we are about 50% US, Europe, UK and fifty percent um, Africa, India, and then um, some in Central America. So mm. uh, we have also shifted the makeup of our remote staff because we've strengthened the way that we work remotely.
1: I have talked to uh, a lot of folks and and about remote and and what Zoom has done and and not. So there seems to be, you know, leaders who say, oh, you know, it's so difficult to build a team, you know, virtually, and then others are saying, no, it's it's possible. So it's the new reality anyway. So you need to make it work. So what are some of the the tips, you know, quick tips that you have for people who are still struggling with, um you know, how do I build my team when I never yeah. see them in person?
0: Um. Be deliberate in everything that you do. <laughs> and, you know, so, so you know, have um, decide on what your platforms are that you're using and use them and stick to them and have um, norms and expectations about how they are used. So, for example, you know, at Humentum, we use Slack for all of our internal communications and we use email only for external communication. And we're very, you know. And if somebody internally, if one of my colleagues emails me something, I will say, "Hey, remember, I'm putting this back into Slack because that's where we handle internal communication." So it's mm-hmm. it's, you know, a certain level of being deliberate. Mm-hmm. Um, it's being deliberate about your organizational culture. That includes, you know, what your values are, what your norms are, expectations, behaviors, and again really making sure that you provide reminders of that, that you model that behavior, um, that you are intentional about what kinds of meetings you have and when. So we have a monthly all staff meeting. We now have a quarterly state of the company meeting where we go across all of our annual targets and see how we're doing. Um, We also review our values and our vision with staff on a regular basis. That's really important. Um, I think one of the areas, and we struggle with this as well, one of the areas that's really difficult remotely is induction. Bringing in somebody who's new to the organization, getting them oriented properly. Um, you know, Sometimes you have the benefit of hiring somebody who's in a city where there are other people who work for you already. And so we encourage them to get together and meet in person. Um, But a lot of times you don't. And so, again, you have to be really thoughtful about how you orient that person to being part of the culture. And I think one of the best practices that other organizations use and we're using increasingly is the idea of having a work buddy and a social buddy so that they don't have to just kind of float around and figure out who's who. But they have somebody who's really um, there to to support them through that. Mm.
1: That's, that's actually interesting that you mentioned that because the we we did develop that for uh within the board, you mm-hmm. know for new board members, you know a, a, a buddy uh, but I don't think we have it for staff. so that's that's yeah I, I don't know why that happened, but that's actually it's, I think it's a good idea with with the board I think it most of the time it it works, you know to
0: yeah.
1: to link uh, one individual with another. Um,
0: um, if I could say just yeah. one more thing about being remote, it's also really important for leadership to consider the different challenges that people have in connecting to a remote environment. And that could be technology. It could be, do they have the right computer? Do they have the right Wi-Fi speed? Um, do they have, you know, rolling blackouts where they live? You know, so it's it can be technology. But it can also be, you know, different people feel different levels of anxiety engaging this way. So we, you know, we really try and provide different set kinds of settings. So like big group settings, but also one-on-ones, small group breakouts, um, the possibility to write in a chat, you know, so that people have the opportunity to contribute in a way that really aligns with their comfort levels. Um, last thing I'll say is that some people have visible or hidden disabilities that can hamper how they connect remotely. And especially, um, you know, people whose first language is not the language that's being used in meetings, uh, being conscious of that and getting people to talk a little bit more slowly, using transcript. Um, also, we have, you know, occasionally you may have somebody who's hard of hearing and may not be able to follow what's being said. So you really need to make sure that people have their video on so that their lips moving is available. You can use the transcripts. So, again, it's it's thinking through some of those things that some might be obvious and some may be less obvious mm-hmm. in terms of facilitating people's engagement.
1: Yeah. No, I really appreciate you you mentioning that. And I think it's important, and and also you know the, the, reminding us that not uh, for many of us English is not a first language. So yeah. so uh, and especially if you talk about being a global organization, right? So yeah, uh, yeah, Christine, I would like to to bring you to the next part of our conversation that is is related to a hundred mile walk that I started doing. Uh, well, now close to eleven. Uh, years ago, because I this year I will do my 1100 mile in Seattle from October 10 to 16. Um, is, you know, if if you would, and, and I'm doing this walk to, and, and this podcast is a spin-off of this 100 mile, and I'm doing that to raise awareness and funds uh, about, for uh, hunger, poverty, and injustice. Um, if you would be asked to walk 100 miles in a week, so that means 15 to 20 miles uh, in a day, which course um, would you uh
0: you know walk one miles? Mm-hmm. um I mean sorry, there are so many there are so many answers um you know i one of the things that I've been struggling with or or really and struggle is not the right word I've been really thinking actively about mm-hmm. um over the last two years is. I spent, so I grew up in Ann Arbor, Michigan, um, and I left when I was 18, and I spent most of my adult life until 10 years ago overseas, mostly in West Africa, Um, and we moved back to the Washington, D.C. area 10 years ago, and then two years ago during the pandemic, I moved back to Michigan. My mother is 90. And um, I moved here for her to be able to live with me, and it means that my husband is in one place for work. I've got a couple of kids in different places, one kid with me here. Um, but I was coming home, and it was like, what does it mean to come home? And what does it mean to engage in a community? And for part of the pandemic, that wasn't an option because we weren't, you know, we were all sitting at home. we weren't able to go out into the community. but you know, now I, I occupy what I consider to be this kind of, um, I don't want to call it, it's not schizophrenic, but it's, it's a bit of a split existence where, you know, my focus at work is very global. It's very much about, it's mission driven, it's social justice driven, it is change driven. Um, and that's what I do at work. And then thinking about what does it mean to live in a community? On a daily basis, and you know, kind of what's around you um, in a very tangible, touchable, seeable way all the time. And so you know, what would I walk for? I wouldn't walk for the global stuff that I do every day at work. That is, I mean that that has been my commitment for decades, and it will continue to be my commitment going mm-hmm. forward. What I have been trying to figure out is, what is my commitment to my community? And how do I affect change? And it's been interesting because I am, I absolutely work at like the policy level and the systems level, but being part of a community now, I've also been like, ooh, that one family, you know, their car got repossessed and it got auctioned by the police and they now have no car to get to work and to the doctor's appointments for their child who is sick. And there's a GoFundMe and there's somebody in my neighborhood who is you know, actively fundraising for them and I can make a difference there. And so that has been the thing that I've really been spending a lot mm-hmm. of time thinking about. And I love my hometown, I love Michigan as a state. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when you said, hundred mile walk I immediately thought oh a hundred miles along the shoreline of Lake Michigan or Lake Superior you know because Michigan is this beautiful peninsula um and but so I would walk for making a difference to my community and Mm -hmm. probably really direct giving that can help people you know that that thing that if they can just get that thing figured out, it like unlocks the future.
1: No, thank you for that. I would like to respond to two quick things. I mean, one is, you know, during my 100 mile walk, I talk about, you know, global hunger, uh, sustainable development goals, but I I also try to use it as an opportunity to show the local situation. So I've walked through a number of states. So yeah, then I visit a local food bank and or or a, or a shelter. Uh, I've been once outside of the US. I went to Indonesia, so then I show there the local uh, issues as well. So so I have I've have, yeah I've have, I have, you know something similar to yeah what you just mentioned. And I would like to remind uh, the listeners and 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 for you maybe this is news is that uh, I did a another episode with Emma Stenström. She lives in Sweden. I think' it's, she lives in Stockholm, Stockholm uh but she um intentionally moved from a good neighborhood where she lived mm-hmm. to you know I maybe what we would call in the u s the hoot you know yeah. uh but, but in in purpose to to yeah. uh you know because ultimately you need to link you need to start co-creating working together. so she so she did that really intentional uh so I yeah, I thought it was very interesting and fascinating when I was listening to her. Uh, story. So um, yeah, you, if you have time, you should check out the conversation mm-hmm. that I had with with her, um, Christine. When, when I walk, um, I'm often accompanied uh, by other people for a couple of miles, and um, you know, then we talk about why are we on Earth? You know, why are we why am I doing this for God's sake for the eleventh time? <laughs> um, but uh, also about spirituality and religion. Mm-hmm. And then very often we talk about, hey, this this next generation is maybe different. Um you know, the institutionalized religion is is uh, disappearing or smaller except for maybe the evangelical side. Um, my My question to you is, what do you see among the the younger generation and around spirituality and and uh, religion? What do you observe? And is that indeed different than than uh, the, the older generation?
0: So, I mean, I think we know that it's different from the older generation. Um, I have to say I grew up in a multi-religion household and I, you know, am in a multi-religion family, um, continue to be in one. I personally am not part of an institutional religion and I have pretty big issues with the way that institutional religion, I think, is used for political Mm -hmm. means. Um, that said, you know, for me, I think there's very successful spiritual, you know, you can have a very successful spiritual life without institutional religion. Um, so they, they're not, they're not mutually exclusive, but they're not, also uh, they're also not mutually dependent. Um, you know, my kids and the kids I see around me and their friends, uh, I can't think of any of them that. You know, practice an institutional religion on a on a regular basis. Um, but what I do see is a shift and I'll, I'm speaking about the United States at this point, but is is really a shift um, despite our political differences, which I think is more at the kind m- of middle age generation than at the younger generation, um. The younger generation just taking people for who they are, and you know kind of saying, why would why would we possibly think, you know differently about somebody because of the color of their skin or because of who they love? Um, you know, and and that they don't they don't even get it. they don't they're like, I don't even understand how that can be somebody's belief that we are fundamentally different and I'm better than you are. And so for me, I mean, that's not quite religion. It's not quite spirituality, Mm -hmm. but it is for me fundamentally about how we treat each other. Mm -hmm. And um, that's how I live. You know, my spirituality and my religion is how we treat each other and um, really just a very deep belief that we are all equal. Mm-hmm. Um, and I see that, I think, reflected more and more in the younger generation and mm-hmm. I, for me, that that gives me a lot of hope.
1: Talking about treating each other, you know, everybody equally, etc. Um, my organization celebrated its 75th anniversary last year and it was a time of, you know, reflecting you know, also one of the reasons that they do another uh, podcast series about my organization talking about, talking with ex-board members, board member staff, etc. Um, one of the things that we discussed is, you know, how did we do uh, as an organization uh, around racial justice? Mm-hmm. And um, so if I ask you, you know, if you look at the NGO sector as a whole, or, you know, when I, let's say the interaction community within the US, right? Um, And I know it's difficult to, if not impossible, to generalize because there are so many different, but how do you think you know that community did in terms of racial
0: justice? Um so I would not call our sector within the US and kind of headquarters Mm -hmm. um, traditionally a diverse welcoming sector. Um, and I think that there has been a push to change that. Um, I will be very candid. I think that there's, I think that we are not necessarily pushing in the right direction because in fact, if we're doing global development, you know, again, I have a very deep seated belief that. The development that's going on should be controlled and, and, you know, led by the people who are closest to where it's happening. And so, you know, I have great respect and big give big kudos to organizations that are looking at disbanding their headquarters, traditionally U.S.-based, for example, and moving leadership across the globe to be much more located in the places where they work. For me, that is the way that for global development, we need to be diversifying and um, responding to racial justice. It's racial justice, but it's not racial justice within the US because we're still in that very, you know, Northern top-down rich country, colonialist, all of those terms that we wanna use position vis-a-vis the communities that we're talking about helping, um, when in fact I think it's a question of shifting power, shifting control, shifting um, accountability and decision making and budgetary authority and all of those things towards communities to be able to work for themselves rather than somebody else controlling what's happening in their community.
1: Talking about global development, Christine is—is is, uh, you know we, as a world, we came up with the 17 Sustainable Development Goals, and it's not perfect, you know. But I, I personally think okay, it's what we have, so let's work with that at least. It's something kind of we we agreed upon. But what 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 uh, do you want the listeners to know about those 17 SDGs? And then in relation to that question, um, I recently came across the Inner Development Goals. And maybe, you know, this is piggybacking on what, what you mentioned earlier in, the, in our conversation is, you know, there are certain things that you need to internalize. And I think the, the, the group of the community that came up with the inner development goals said, you know, the reason that we are not reaching those goals, or are we going too slow, and actually the human development report that came out today is saying we, we were going backwards. Um, this group that came up with the inner development uh, goals says that because we don't pay proper attention to the abilities and skills and mm. uh and qualities that you need as an individual and as a community to really work on those goals, sdgs that's why you know we we are facing these these enormous challenges and it's going too slow so mm. two two questions to you you know one is what do you want the listeners to know about the sdgs and second can you maybe reflect a bit on on the
0: inner development goals yeah um well and i think that um Maybe my comment about the SDGs it bridges very well to this idea of the inner development goals um, because you know, the, the millennium development goals were very much developed by a group of people sitting around and coming up with them and imposing them on the developing world, quote, unquote. the shift The big shift with the sustainable development goals was moving to universality. And the idea that you know these are not goals that are only for a certain group of countries; these are goals for all countries, and um, that's pretty radical. And especially coming from the U.S., where the U.S. traditionally doesn't sign on to anything. Um, you know, we had a lot of questions. I, I was involved. I was with Global Health Council during the development of the Sustainable Development Goals, and so I was. Very active in civil society and at the UN and everything while that was going on. And, you know, we we're like, Ooh, what is the US going to think about this? And is the US going to report on it? And, um, no, exactly. And so, um, you know, what I want people to under, you know, to think about with the sustainable development goals is the importance of having a universal approach to development. We're not talking about those people over there and you know pulling them out of poverty we're talking about all of our societies and these are you know standards and quality of living and well-being that should apply everywhere and i mean frankly if we take a you know a a magnifying glass to the united states we have some pretty abysmal development metrics um and that don't get enough attention so um you know so so i think that the sustainable development goals are really important. Um I have definitely seen, you know, an increase in familiarity and uptake across a lot of countries, but again, um you know, I think universality is really important, but I also see that, you know, there are countries like the US who frankly just kind of can't be bothered. So that that's disappointing. Um for the inner development goals, you know, it's really thinking about Capabilities and personal development, and you know, the I don't want to just it's not the individual because it's the power of the collective as well. But um, again, I think that's a way that we see um, a representation of this idea of universality because those are things that everybody can work on. Um, And again, it's recognizing the inherent value in each and every one of us, and the idea that I know better than you. Um, you know, I may have differences to you, but let's work on identifying, you know, each of our sweet spots and like what are we, you know what what are we interested in? What brings us joy to work on? How can we contribute best? and then what are those skills and capabilities? And, um, you know, the information and, and expertise that you can then develop and bring to a problem. Um, and so, you know, that is, that is a fundamental piece of then looking towards those larger global policy Mm -hmm. goals, like sustainable development goals.
1: Christine, I I really enjoyed this conversation and and I appreciate, you know, not only your telling about your organization and your point of view, but also I think we are getting to know you uh, through this conversation as well. I'm going one step further in in this process and and that is uh, going in the direction of music, which is very important to me. And I always ask a question to my guests about, you know, if I ask you to come up with a piece of music or a song that best embodies Who you are, which song would that be and why?
0: Um, And I know you gave this to me ahead of time and I didn't (laughs) come up with a good answer. And I'll say the reason I didn't come up with a good answer is because I have really eclectic taste Mm -hmm. in music. I can listen to and enjoy just about anything. Mm -hmm. Um, And I will say, like last night, I went to a concert, um, the Black Keys. Cool. That's a, yeah. you know, a U.S. indie mm-hmm. rock group um, that was awesome, and it was just wonderful seeing them. And just like really guitar, really good bass. Um, I love American folk music. I've been really into Rihanna Giddens, um, who is an incredible artist, and she's you know trained as an opera singer, but has really just brought so much life and, and just visibility to American folk music. Mm-hmm. She's written an opera now that is it, it, um, uh debuted at Spoleto in South Carolina. It'll be at, in L.A. at the end of October. I'm going to go see it called Omar. That's based on the memoir of an enslaved man in the 1800s in the United States. It's mm. his true memoir, but now has been turned into an opera. So I just I love all sorts of music. Um,
1: you, you can cheat. You can come up with three titles if you want or two.
0: <laughs> okay. So um again, I'm not gonna come up with a title, but um favorite musicians, mm-hmm. Habib Kwate, mm-hmm. who is a Malian singer. Um, my husband is from Mali. I lived in Mali for 14 years. Malian music is just the best music on earth. It is just amazing. Ali Alifarcature, um sangare. Um please everyone go out and listen to it if you haven't ever listened to it before. Um, again, kind of American roots music. So, um, Rihanna Giddens, um, Bonnie Raitt, uh, James Taylor, um, Pete Seeger, you know, just music, And, and then, and then the, and rhythm and blues, John Lee Hooker, um, Helen Wolf. that that music all really pleased me. Steve Run, the Black Keys, um, and then the the um, the Bach cello sonatas um, okay. played by Yo-Yo Ma.
1: Okay, great.
0: And that the, there are no words to that, but there don't need to be words. It's just, yeah, you know,
1: and I I if I if I understand you. You know, it's it, and this it, it relates to the places uh, where you've lived, uh, where you, you know, because of people you love, you know, those, those type of things. That's that's kind of my conclusion when I listen to you. Uh, and is that correct? Yeah,
0: it is correct. And it's it's just it's music that is very, you know, kind of deep inside of you hmm. in your soul.
1: Just just for to remind the listeners, I I made a, or we made a uh, a playlist on Spotify, and I almost not to to all the guests that I've had, but many of the guests I asked this question. So you know the list becomes longer and longer. I I really listen to it myself often because it yeah. reminds me of you know my guests, but it's also yeah it's a wide range from from hard rock to classical music, and uh, so it's it's I enjoyed it. So I I would. Encourage people to check that out. Um, Christina, you know, these conversations always go fast. Um, my my maybe my last uh, question that I have for you is any message
0: invitation or question for the listeners? Um So I think that where I've ended up in the last couple of years, is really about being thoughtful and deliberate. And that goes along with the idea that you can make mistakes, but when you make mistakes, recognize them, um, apologize, but, but then really think about like, okay, what was my mistake? What can I do differently? Let me ask someone for their input let me make a commitment to reset my behavior or to try and do things differently in the future. And I think that something that's been very hard for a lot of people and frankly is the cause of a lot of our current um, conflict is the idea that, um, you know, we're now speaking openly about hurt and harm that has been caused over hundreds of years by the way that, Um, you know, society has been structured and has acted. Um, And people tend to come at it as oppositional forces about blame and finger pointing, or even if it's not being delivered, that the message isn't delivered that way, people take it very personally. And what I just encourage everyone to do is think about it more from the perspective of a conversation Think of it more from the perspective of, um, you know, again, okay, harm was done. What can I do differently? How can how can we work differently in the future? Um, and so it doesn't have to be, it doesn't have to be, it has, doesn't have to perpetuate the harm or compound the harm, um, but it can be the opportunity for new discussion for healing for um empathy and so you know but but you have to be deliberate in that um and and that you shouldn't you know oh i feel so bad that i did this thing that i can't possibly ever talk about it again that's I, for me that's the wrong reaction it's oh look at this thing now let's open and look forward and think you know how can i engage around this and Come up with
1: ways to do things differently. I, I really appreciate this comment from you. I I, uh, I really believe in you know the conversation, and and one of the reasons that I have this podcast is also to show people that you know we have more in common often than than you know there are differences. And and uh, yeah, it's based as I said in the, always in the beginning of the podcast uh, based on the belief that everyone's perspective is true, albeit partial. And nobody can be wrong hundred percent of the time. Yeah. So um, yeah, I, I, I would like to thank you for for today for sharing your incredible insights. I, I you know I think it's it's a must re- listen to uh, from my perspective for every CEO out there um, you know is looking at the future of, of uh, his or her organization.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, so th- thank you so much. I, I would like. Uh, yeah, to tell the listeners that they should check out, you know, your website. Um, I will mention that in the podcast notes, but also check, check out your articles that you often write in, in DevX. Mm-hmm. Um Really insightful, important. Uh, yeah, crucial. So thank you so much. And thanks for everything you do, Christine.
0: Thank you. Uh, it's a pleasure and an honor to speak with you today. And, um, you know, thanks to your listeners for paying attention and being interested. Great. Thanks. All right. Take care.
1: Thank you for listening to Walk, Talk, Listen. Please check us out on... 100mile.org Or follow us on Facebook or Instagram.